0: Good morning, family. Thank you, Jeff, for reading, and thank you, music team. Thank you, Alan, so much. Um, you being able to share that gives us all courage, and it tells us that the love of God is something real. We're going to be um, speaking of what it looks like to be a steadfast follower of God this morning, and holding steadfast to the promises of God doesn't always mean that life itself is steadfast, and that life is steady, but it means that we can cling on to the one who is. So thank you, Alan. Thank you, Jackson family. God, we... Want to open up our service this morning, and we just want to open up our hearts. That's something that we ask that you would do for us. That you would open us wide open to to hear what you want to speak to us. What you want to speak to our hearts, God. I just pray that we would we would be open to that. That you would use your word, in the story of Nehemiah and your people so long ago, God, to speak to us this morning to teach us what you want to teach us about our enemy and about you, our steadfast and unwavering God. So I just pray that you would guide my words and let them be yours um, as we get into this this morning. Thank you, Father. Amen. All right. So, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you remember how much I hate mouse traps? <sighs> do you guys hate mouse traps? Do you hate them as much as I do? I can't tell you what it does to me to set a mouse trap. This would have been a good Sunday where I should have had you all move forward. This is when I should have had it. Um, a couple weeks ago, I had showed you the, the video and we had gone through the, the uh, analogy of a room, an enclosed room full of mousetraps with these ping pong balls. And just the explosive power as the chain reaction as one ignites the other, which ignites the other until the room is just exploding. Um, all to demonstrate the idea that we as, as a church are filled with a bunch of individuals that are called to be sensitive to the call of God, to be armed and, and ready to respond. Uh, I finished out the sermon with building great anticipation for you guys of seeing that demonstration live, and we even had some people videoing it, thinking it was going to be something incredible, but the mouse traps weren't armed. And so it was extremely anticlimactic. The point being that the church, this body of Christ, will be anticlimactic in the same way if we are not sensitive and ready to respond. It it will be a dud. It will not be exciting. It will not get anything done. It will not be explosive as God created us to be um, explosive. Um, Now, as we move forward into the story of Nehemiah, however, We come into the next part because if you do have a Christian, an individual who is sensitive to the call of God and in turn is responsive to that call of God, he hears the call of God and he responds, it's not going to be very long before that individual comes in confrontation with the enemy of God, that the enemy is going to be unhappy. As soon as you begin to respond to God, our adversary, the devil, is going to take notice, and he's not going to be happy. So the story of Nehemiah is a, a story that really documents the life of a man that responded to God, that was sensitive to what God wanted to do, and he took action on it, responded, and it documents the effect that it had as everybody else got on board because of his response. However, it did not take long before Satan began to notice, and... Um, we notice the working of Satan in this book so directly. What I, what I love, and as you, we go through this this morning, you begin to see the emotion of Satan almost working through three primary individuals that were these rulers or governors that are outside the land of Israel uh, by the names of Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. You go through the book, and these three menaces are at the heels of Israel, at the heels of Nehemiah, the entire time. And though these are three men, um, actual men in history, uh, we know how Satan works through the trading of powers, and you can almost see the anger of Satan through the anger of these men as as he attempts to prevent God's work from being done. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Once we begin to be a responsive church, once we begin to be a sensitive, responding church, the combustible church that God wants us to be, doing the work that he has called us to do in the community, um, we're going to come against some opposition. So I want to dig into this, start looking at a few verses um, as we go track throughout the story. And it starts right away. As soon as Nehemiah is sent by the king, Artaxerxes, uh, it starts up. So Nehemiah chapter 2, I'll start in verse 9. He says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me officers of the army and horsemen. But, listen to this, verse 10 already, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel immediately they're displeased that somebody wants to look after the welfare of this nation of Israel um, So Sanbalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshem the Arab all three of those nations they people groups that were driven out of the promised land by God through the nation of Israel so now when the tides have turned and Israel has been led away into captivity for years on end, and now they are they are sent back to Israel. These uh, people groups would like nothing better than to see Israel wallowing in the ashes and rubble of their city, with no power, no ability to do anything effective. Um, and they're going to keep them there in oppression, and they don't want anybody to look after it. It's interesting. Um, it didn't take long. It just took Nehemiah coming to cross the border, and you could see the flare of the anger of the enemy does not want God's purpose to be done. And more than that, he doesn't even want somebody caring about his people. And uh, as we get into this, I would just say that when Satan is holding men and women captive, and you begin to step into that realm, it's not going to make him happy. Um, When you begin to seek the welfare of his poor unfortunate souls that are held in his captivity... Satan is not going to be a happy individual. If you start breaking in the strongholds of any kind that he's been glad to see fortified, then you're going to see Satan's emotions. 2 verse 19. Immediately after, Nehemiah encouraged the people of what God had been doing. And it says, to so the people "Strengthen their hands for the good work. They're ready to go. Well, there's a response immediately. But when Sanballat the Horonite, and Tobiah... The Ammonite, the servant, and Gesheb, the Arab, heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So they immediately come out with an attack of intimidation. Um, Are you rebelling against the king? What are you doing? Trying to intimidate them immediately. The lie is that you're in over your head. You don't know what you're getting into. You can't do this. You don't have the authority to do this. The king wouldn't approve of this. 4, chapter 4, 1 through 3. I'm just going to cruise through these here. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry. Okay, so they didn't respond to their intimidation. They didn't respond to the mocking. When he heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of, of his brothers in the army of Samaria. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones of the heap of rubbish and the burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what are they building if a fox were to jump on it? It would break down their stone wall. So they come in there and... They come in with mocking next. All right, so we didn't intimidate them. We didn't discourage them. And they just begin to humiliate them among all the armies of Samaria and the other people around. And then the lie is that you can't do this. You aren't even doing a good job. You don't have the supplies to do this. It's going to be a pathetic attempt. You don't have the authority. You don't have the supplies. Do you really think that you can get this done? Do you really think that you can accomplish anything that you're going to work at? The lies of Satan that come in. Second, to bring discouragement. Looking for, verse 7 through 8. In verse 6, you see that um, Nehemiah and the people of Israel did not back down. It says, so we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height because the people had a mind to work. Okay, The people were set steadfast because they knew this was the work of God. But in verse 7, when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites. okay, it's growing now, heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed. They were angry, very angry, it says. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem, and to, what? To cause confusion in it, or to disturb it. It's interesting that the point is not against the people. The fight is not against the people. The point is to stop the work. And that's the thing that we need to realize is Satan, Satan doesn't care about us. Satan cares about the work that God wants to do through you. Satan wants to, wants to be concerned about what we can accomplish. And he will do whatever he can to discourage, disrupt, and extinguish the work that God has planned to do through his people. I want you to think about this one, because they conspired to attack, to strike fear into the hearts. When you're going on to a task, have you ever been in a spot where you know where you're in the will of God, where God has called you to be, and something comes along that disrupts it? It could be a distraction of any kind that, that sets you off. It could be a family emergency. It could be a family crisis. It could be life changes of, of any sort. Maybe it's a move where you're in a new people group, you're away from your friend circle. Uh, Maybe it's a forced schedule change, throws you off. A job loss, health issues, you can go on and on. Things come in that disrupt us, and sometimes it could be simple. I'd be ashamed to tell you how how simple the disruptions have been in my life so many times. Or I'm going on doing the will of God, and then all of a sudden I have to get up an hour early in the morning than I was or something simple like that and and now I'm not getting the time with God that I was doing and and things begin to fall apart. It could be more serious than that. You you could have a loss in your family. You could have something else. God allows these things to happen but Satan inserts these things in our life as disruptions because he wants the work to come to an end. Look in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 2, or I'll start in one. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem said to me, come, let us meet together in Haka for him. In the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. Our enemy is, is subtle. What's interesting when you read through this is you can almost see the emotions. No matter what, Satan wants God's work stopped. And when he's not getting it by force or intimidation or humiliation or discouragement, then he comes in with subtlety. And he can come in with the form of false peace. And this can derail us if we are steadfast in the same way, because let's be honest, the work of God can often be exhausting. The work of God can be exhausting. And when you are dealing with oppression and opposition, and all of a sudden that opposition that you're dealing with, it appears to you have an option of peace. A false peace can derail you from the work of God. Sandballad is coming to Nehemiah and saying, come, let's Okay, you're working on the wall. Things haven't been off to a good start. But come down, come down and, and meet with me in, in the plains. and We'll, we'll settle this. We can, we can settle this peacefully. Any way that he can do to derail the work. And the point is we need to be perceptive as, as believers that we don't put rest above the work of God. That we don't put any sort of peace above the work of God. I want to show you two more as we continue in that, 6, 5 through 9. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant with me with an open letter in his hand, and it was written, now it is reported among the nations in Geshem, also says it that you and the Jews intend to rebel. And that is why you are building the wall, And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem that there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now, come, let us take counsel together. So he's getting desperate. You can see this king, Satan working through this king, to shut down the work of God. That when he doesn't get the subtle diversion, he begins to slander his reputation. And he begins to make up these false stories to spread around that... Oh, Nehemiah is wanting to be a king. He's wanting to rebel against the king. And he's sending it out as a threat to Nehemiah that if if this word gets out to the king, the high king Artaxerxes, then he's not going to like hearing this. So, come, let's talk about this and figure out how we can come to an agreement, a solution. He's threatening him with earthly law, authority, and rule, (laughs) intending to discourage him. What, the lie that he's spreading here is that what do you think will happen when the king finds out about your treason? I don't know if you've ever felt that. If you've ever dealt with that in the job place or um, in your workplace of any kind, if you're a teacher, a lot of times this comes on heavy. But in the workplace, it could be, be there in many situations where um, you have a threat of who you answer to. Do you answer to God or do you answer to the law? of the land, as far as the mission that you're on. And the final thing that I want to read is uh, chapter 6, verse 10 through 13. Now, when I was in the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Meherabel, who was confined to his home... He said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple to live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he, was pronounced, but he had pronounced a prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose, he was hired. Why? That I should be afraid and act in the way that is sin and that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. The most difficult attack of our enemy to perceive is that attack that comes from our fellow brothers and sisters. From our brothers and sisters, The hard part is that oftentimes it's not intentional. But if you come to somebody out of your own will and you are not speaking the words of God, you can subtly and inadvertently be used by Satan to bring discouragement. And we see this in the life of of Job, when Job's friends come to him and, and they speak their own wisdom to Job of what they think is going on. And God condemns them at the end and says, That's not my words. I didn't say that. Now, this man was hired by the enemy. But it comes as a spiritual deception that, come, let's hide in the temple. Let's go take refuge in God. But in order to take refuge in God, he would have had to abandon the work that God knew that he was called to do. And let me tell you, if, if you are ever tempted to abandon the work of God, to do something that seems spiritual, the chances are it's not from God. And you need to remember that. If you ever feel tempted to abandon something that you know God has told you to do in order to do something that seems spiritual. The chances are it is not really from God. You know, um, there is, thinking of the enemy's subtlety, there, there's been a rumors or a legend for years, more legends than anything, that wildcats like cougars and jaguars have the ability to mimic the sounds of their prey in order to lure them to a spot where they can kill them. Um, and it was considered more legend uh, than anything until in 2005, some scientists caught a video of uh, a South American, it's like a bobcat. It's a, it looks really cute, but it's not. A little tiny thing, it's called a margay. Uh, they caught footage of this thing Up at at the base of of a tree, hiding out in these vines where these monkeys, little small monkeys, were jumping around. And it didn't have the ability to reach the monkeys, it wasn't fast enough to catch the monkeys in the tree. Um, But hiding out in the vines, they caught footage of this thing mimicking the sound of a distressed infant monkey, mimicking the sound. And all of a sudden, the whole, whatever you would call them, the whole cackle of monkeys. Is it a cackle of monkeys? That just sounds better. The whole clan all stopped, and they wanted to figure out what was this distressed monkey, distressed infant down there that was in trouble. And they all began to gather around, and a few of them began to investigate it until they got close enough that this margay jumped out from its hiding and missed it. Didn't get it. Sorry. It didn't it didn't get it. But what it did was it opened up a whole new study for these scientists that, wow, maybe there's some more truth to these old wives' tales, that these cats are able to mimic the sounds of their prey. And since then they found a lot more conclusive evidence of these wild cats doing this. Mimicking the sound, mimicking the sound of of those that they want to target. False spiritual diversion comes in the same way. Satan knows how to mimic spirituality. He knows how to mimic the words of God. And did you know that Satan can use the word of God to lead you away from God? He did it himself, didn't he? Something we need to be careful of. I'm not going to labor that point anymore, but I will say this as we come to the conclusion of of seeing the attacks of Satan, that ultimately there is no rest and there is no safety apart from being in the will of God. And that's the takeaway here. There is no safety and there is no rest apart from being where God has called you to be. That's the only safe place, even if it seems like the most dangerous place. I want to take a look at the other side of of our enemy. Because when we are undergoing opposition from Satan, it appears intimidating. John 8.44 says that, that Satan is the father of lies. And everything that he puts forth to Nehemiah in this book is just words from the father of lies. I would call this section dealing with the phony king. Dealing with the phony king. Have you guys ever watched the best um, Disney movie ever made, which would be Robin Hood? I have all the songs going through my head now, but Robin Hood, that good old Disney movie, has the song about Prince John, the phony king of England. Okay, maybe you don't know. I'll go home and watch it now to get my fill. That's the way we want to see this here. When you step into the right perspective, the perspective of a steadfast servant, Satan is more than a, nothing more than a phony king. A king with threats. Six... Nehemiah six fifteen through 16 says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. And when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. Why? For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. There's the power. Okay, The job is done. It's done in 52 days. It's unreal for this work to be done. All of these enemies that were so strong and powerful lost their confidence because they realized this was the hand of God and it couldn't have been done any other way. But I want to kind of review this in a different light because there's a difference between having the appearance of power and having actual power. All these threats that the enemies made upon Nehemiah and Israel. It's interesting to me that they didn't take any action on any of those threats. Oh, we're gathering up for war. We're getting our armies ready. But they never take action. And obviously, the obvious part of that is because Israel had God protecting them. But I think it's important to see the backstory, physically speaking, humanly speaking as well, because it gives us an incredible insight to the spiritual realm of what's going on. And in order to see the backstory of this, you really got to go to the previous book, the book of Ezra. Because Nehemiah came here with the mission to rebuild the walls. Uh, Almost 20 years previous, Ezra came into the land with a group. And his mission was to rebuild the temple. And interestingly enough, he met the exact same opposition from the same governors. They already had tried this. They wanted to shut down the work of the building of the temple. All these people outside the river And they came with a lot of the same tactics up until they actually came to King Artaxerxes with a complaint. And I wish I could read you the whole story. It's really lengthy. And I don't want to put you asleep before I get to my point. But let me sum up the story in this. These governors are upset. They want the work stopped. So they go to King Artaxerxes. And they tell him, like a tattling child on a playground, that, oh, do you know what these Israelites are doing? They're trying to rebuild the temple. And if you look in your history books about the nation of Israel, you can see that they're a menace to everybody around them. And you'll see that they are a threat. And if they build this, they're not going to submit to you, and they do this whole story to turn the king against them. King Artaxerxes says, okay, well, if that's so, we don't want that happening. So he issues a decree to stop the work on the temple. Okay? Seems devastating, but here's the thing. Um, The nation of uh, Persia right now is what we're in. And it's kind of a combined nation of of two Media and Persia combined together to make one big force. The largest uh, ruling nation in the world powers at this time. Uh, And Persia had conquered the other largest empire, which was Babylon. So, because the nation of Persia was so great of an empire to to cover, they had the high king, which ruled in the north, which at this time was King Darius. We know him historically as Darius the Great. And Darius had a secondary king, which would be like a viceroy, that covered what was the Babylonian empire in the south. And that was Artaxerxes. So, when Artaxerxes says to stop the work of the temple, and that comes back to the people of Israel, they said... Um, okay, we want to make a plea to the high king, Darius, Darius the Great, because the great high king Cyrus, we know him, Cyrus the Great, is the one that gave us permission to build. And so these governors say, okay, well, we'll take it to, to Darius. And so they go to the high king, and they put this, the words before Darius to check into this historically um, and see who this nation of Israel is and all of this. Well, it backfires on them because Darius the Great looks back in the histories of what Cyrus had wrote about the people of Israel. And he finds out that Cyrus loved these people. He finds out that Cyrus the Great did issue a decree to send them back to Israel. And that Cyrus the Great did tell them that they were okay to build the temple. And so Darius sends word back with these governors outside the land. And he says, look, here's what you're going to do. You're going to tell them that they have my stamp of approval to build these walls. In fact, or to build a temple, sorry. You have my stamp of approval to build the temple. In fact, you are going to fund it, he tells the governors. You're going to fund the building of this temple with your supplies outside the river. And you're going to give them food and livestock while they do it. And if I hear any word of any opposition that comes against them from you, the person who does will be killed. Actually, a bit more graphic than that. He says that we will draw timbers out of your own house and that man will be impaled on it. Okay? A little threatening. So it really turned back on these governors. This was only a few years previous. And so now these governors are making threats on Nehemiah, these same people outside the river, even though they know they have absolutely no power to accomplish it. And they're threatening, oh, we're going to come against you and fight. Even though they know that if they lay a hand on Nehemiah or the people of Israel, they're going to be impaled on their own house lumber. <laughs> By the high king's decree. It's incredible when we think about it. the um, phony king. This history was hanging over their heads. They had the appearance of power. They had all of the threats against Nehemiah and the people. But when the high king issued a decree, all they could do was cower like puppies. And the point that I want to drive home here is that we, spiritually, we we don't answer to the threats of the governors. We answer to the high king. And those phony kings outside the river don't mean anything. They can have swords and spears and they can have an army that can destroy us and wipe us out. But they don't have power. To accomplish a single thing, as long as we are steadfast in the call of God. Now, originally I was going to be doing four series in this, um, four, four messages instead of the threes, so we had to cut out a bit of content. I wanted to take you through individually the responses of the people to the threats. We don't have time to go through that this morning, but I'll sum it up in this. These people... Nehemiah and the people, they they modeled this so consistently. If I were to sum it up just simply. That they didn't answer to anybody but their high king. Nehemiah knew that he had the call of God. Because God had placed a burden on his heart. And that's what we had talked about the first week. God had placed a burden on his heart and he was so confident in that burden. That call that he knew God wanted it done. So every time that, that something comes, whether it's an act of intimidation, whether it's an act of uh, fearful threats, they don't break from the call of God and the work of God. In fact, you see as they go through there, as things get dangerous, pretty dangerous there at certain points, they're staying up all night. It says uh, that, that they were doing the work with one hand and holding their sword in the other. It says that, that they, didn't even, they, they didn't take their clothes off, even to go down to the water, they kept their weapon on them. So they were ready for opposition. But what it says there most importantly is that when the armies gathered against them, they stood together and they prayed together. They stood together and they prayed together. I talked about it last week, about uh, the call of the trumpet. That Nehemiah says to the people, look, when, when you hear the sound of a trumpet, we're all spread out doing our work in front of our own houses. When you hear the call of the trumpet, rally together and we stand shoulder to shoulder. That's exactly what they did. They stood together. They prayed together. And then when God rerouted the enemy, discouraged the enemy, and answered their prayers, what did they do? They went back to their homes. And they did the work that God had told them to do. Until... All of the different sections of the wall had joined together, each in front of his own home. Steadfast individually and steadfast together, that's the whole point of how God has created the body of Christ to be in the same way, that we're steadfast individually in the purpose that God has given us, and that translates into being steadfast as a body together First Corinthians 15:57. It says, "But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I don't want to downplay the power of our adversary. It's not what I'm trying to do this morning. But this account in Nehemiah gives us good insight to just how frustrated and powerless Satan is. When, and it's important to understand this, only when he is faced off with servants who are steadfast to the call of God. And I'll say this, and I want you to remember this, the only way that Satan would have the ability to bring harm on these people would be if the people were to step out of, walk away from, or abandon that call and purpose of God. The only way that they could have been harmed is if they abandoned the work that God had called them to. If Nehemiah would have chosen for peace, he would probably have been killed in the valley. Because you see, the high king had given them a decree to, to do the work. But if they weren't doing the work, and if they were meddling with the enemy in the valley, then we're in a different situation. The only way that Satan could bring harm is if they were to abandon the call or the purpose that God had placed on their life. Let me ask you this. What has God called you to individually? What has God called you to? are you doing the work that God has called you to? And this is the point of everything that I've been going through this month is that each of us has an individual call and purpose. We are puzzle pieces that fit together to make up um, in our own individual ways to make up God's picture Now, I brought some mixed-match puzzles this morning. When I say mixed-match, I mean I cleaned up, it with, you know, with kids. You never have a whole puzzle anywhere. You have pieces that are laying around. So this is a hodgepodge of, I think, some Avengers, some Lightning McQueen, some Woody, and Rapunzel. Should make a pretty good picture, right? Um, well, how a puzzle works, you don't get to just pick a piece and then decide what picture you want to put it in, right? I don't get to take a puzzle piece and then say, all right, I like this piece, and then I want it to go in that picture because I want to be part of that picture. That's, that's not how a puzzle works. In fact, I would say the only person that could decide what the, what the picture looks like in the puzzle is the one that created the puzzle, right? In this case, uh, Cardinal Gaming Products is the one that gets to decide what the picture looks like and how the pieces fit together. And it's the only one that decides, but it's the one that cut it out. Um, If we were all part of a puzzle, and each one of you was given your puzzle piece and your 100,000-whatever-piece puzzle, you don't get your piece and then decide which picture you want to go in. We don't get to take our puzzle pieces and pick a picture that we want to fit in. The only one that can decide where we fit in the picture is the one who designed it and who individually cut us for our spot in that picture. And in the end, it doesn't matter what you would think you were cut out for. Sorry. It doesn't matter what you think you were cut out for. You need to ask the one who cut you out. And you could say that I want to do that, or I want to do this, or in five years I want to be here, or I want to accomplish this. But you've got to come to grips with this. God says, you have a piece in my picture. You have a piece in my picture. The question is, are you plugged into that picture? Or are you trying to obey God in your own way while sitting on the side somewhere? You can't make God's pieces fit into your picture. And if you try, you might end up with some sort of a disjointed mess that has princesses and lightning queen together. (laughs) The passage that Jeff read for us this morning, I want to revisit that. In Nehemiah chapter nine, starting in verse thirty five. This passage really hit me when I was reading through it. it. Says even in their own kingdom and amid your great sorry, and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set before us because of your sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. I read that, and honestly, it broke my heart. The idea that they're slaves in the promised land that God given to them. Slaves in their promised land. I don't know about you, but I I relate I relate to this. The people of Israel were in the promised land, but the promised blessings of the land were being devoured by the kings outside the river. Phony kings. Do you understand the feeling of being in a place that God has called you and yet not enjoying the blessings that God has promised to you? Have you been there where all of God's promises of power, peace, abundance, joy, and can go on, they're all being devoured in your life by phony rulers such as fear, bitterness, discontentment, jealousy, anxiety, whatever it may be. Just to be candid with you guys, um, God has taken Gabby and I on an interesting journey the last four months through a lot of stuff of reshaping what is primary in our life. Through a lot of life transitions of um, primarily selling our house, um, moving to a new house. Um, months ago <laughs> and in that I guess you can easily begin to make plans and have ideals of how everything is going to work out and ideals of um, what the next stage is going to be look like will be looking like uh, ideals of how much better a place it will be in many different regards and you plan accordingly and as God often does, it, things don't necessarily work out in the timing that we want. I have people in here that are smiling who have obviously sold the house. And when things don't follow our time scale, um, these rulers pop up like anxiety and worry and a calculator. <laughs> and... Um, all of it while we're waiting for that next stage, pushing on that. well, if we could just make it to here, then we'll get back to normal life. And we had to come to a point, or I should say God had to bring us to a point, Gabby and I, of realizing that all of our current, immediate blessings in life were being consumed by anxieties and fear and... uh, everything else that we were giving place to rule. All the while waiting for our next stage to come Um, so that we could be at our resting place, so we could be at our promised land, you know? And then we could serve God better than we do now. If we could just make it to fill in the blank, you know? We'll be okay, and then we could really serve God. There was a certain point when I was spewing out all of my anxieties to God. And I'm sure I was justifying it as something spiritual, even though it was probably not. And um, God spoke to my heart and just said, Weston, when's the last time that you asked me anything about what I wanted for your family? And when's the last time that you made plans about how your family can be effective for me? What about my purpose for your family? That was a reshaping moment in our family. Because when it comes down to it, it really comes to a point of acceptance of God, place me in your picture. If we're in a puzzle, God, what is my, what is my place in your picture? And It became kind of an anthem for Gabby and I that let's not rest until we, every day, ask God, God, what's our place? Where do you want us? Where do you want us to be? What's our place in your picture? When we think about this idea of slaves in the promised land, I want to take you back to the original entrance into this promised land. God had given the people of Israel this land and we read in Joshua chapter 1, when they first came into the land, it says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to you, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. And I could read on and on about all the promises that God says, But the interesting thing about Joshua chapter 1 is that every promise that God gives to Joshua and the people of Israel is in the past tense, as though it's already been accomplished. He says, I have given it to you. It's already done. In other words, there was no work that needed to be accomplished in order to inherit the land. The only thing that the people of Israel needed to do was to follow their God and watch him conquer The point is this everything that holds a place in rule, place of rule in your life, that devours God's blessing and promise is self-appointed. It's a phony king. All of those things lost their power in a pre-existent past action when Christ made plans to conquer all earthly powers through his triumph on the cross. It's done. Past tense. And Galatians goes clearly into that, that our chains have been cut. We don't answer to our taskmaster anymore. Of all of these things, we've been freed. The people of Israel here, in Nehemiah in that passage, they're lamenting how they are, they're, they're, they're sitting as slaves in the promised land. But what's remarkable, is that, remarkable to me is that the kings to whom these people were, quote, enslaved had no physical power over them. Sometimes you might say that Israel had sinned and so God was putting them back under the bondage as a punishment. I think our guilt speaks that often. It's easier to understand a God that would hold us in captivity because we deserve it. But God doesn't think the way we think. And his grace is not something that we can understand. These kings never had authority to them. On on the contrary, as I read earlier, uh, Israel had been declared a free nation by the high king, Cyrus the Great. Furthermore, they had been commissioned by the high king Darius, following after him to rebuild the temple and by Artaxerxes to rebuild the wall and restore the city. So the high kings had not only set them free, but had commanded them to do the work of God. Furthermore, all who would oppose their restoration would fall to the judgment of the high king. So in other words, they had been set free by the highest human authority in the world and commissioned to return, rebuild, and enjoy the blessings of their promised land. To not take charge of the land, would actually be going against the gracious decree of the high king. And yet they disregarded the orders of the high king in order to submit to the governors who were in truth commanded to be in submission to them. The high king had commanded them to be free. John 8.36 says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And I don't know of a verse in the Bible that carries so much power with it because there's not a king that is higher than the high king of kings. And if he has set you free, then who can call you a slave? We need to make sure that we're not listening to the threats of the governors in our lives. Satan loves to speak through these phony kings to bring discouragement or fear and to derail us from God's task. Because that's what it's all about. The work of God. The task. When the people of Ezra were com- commanded by the king to cease from their work, what did they do? They appealed to the decree of the high king. What are the phony kings in your life that continuously derail you from the purpose of God? Think about it. And think what is the high c- king's decree on that subject? Is it fear? What does the high king say find a verse isaiah 43 1 but now thus says the lord fear not for i have redeemed you i have called you by name you are mine is it anxiety the high king says do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known to god and the peace of god which surpasses all understanding will guard your heart's and your minds in Christ Jesus. You can go on and on. Discontentment. We have to appeal to the high king, what he says about us. Conclusion. If you guys have these phony kings pop up in your life to derail you from God's purpose or to keep you from ever discovering that purpose, you need to get into his word. You need to hide this in your heart. You need to appeal to the decree of the high king. So as we wrap up the series on this Nehemiah, I want you guys to remember this. to Bring it all together, what God has called us to be. He has called us to be sensitive to his voice. Sensitive to the call of God. Second, he called us to be responsive to the call of God. And once we know what that call is, God has called us to be steadfast in that call of God. And when but that begins to happen, the pieces begin to come together to form an incredible picture. Here's a. Here's how a puzzle works. Who likes puzzles? puzzle people. When you have your puzzle, your puzzle piece, you look at your piece all alone and out of context and it's pretty hard to tell what it is and where it fits. But as you begin to study God, the author of the puzzle and you begin to study and observe pieces to the puzzle that he has placed in their places the picture becomes more clear and more clear and more clear until suddenly one day as you begin to seek and seek every day what does god want for me what is my place one day you will realize i'm a tree That's what I am. It's a tree. You know what I'm talking about. You put puzzles together. You find your place. That's why I'm green. Oh, I go there. That's my spot. Where are my other trees? Where are the other trees? Let's work together. Let's take our section. Let's put this corner together. Let's all get together. And you begin to call out anybody that is like you. You begin to find people that have the same vision, the same the same calling, the same gifts, and you work together to fill out the picture that God has. That's how it works. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you so much for your remarkable truths that you give us through people that have lived before us, all pieces of a great picture, bigger than we could ever imagine, God. And one day, we're going to see that picture We're going to see exactly what you are doing, past, present, future, God, the whole deal. For now, I just pray that you would help us to seek your call on our hearts, to seek after what your purpose is for our lives and our hearts, our families. Where do we fit in your puzzle, God? Where do we fit in your picture? Thank you for men like Nehemiah who are steadfast, responsive, and sensitive. We pray this in your name. Amen.